Uh, well, good morning, uh, everyone, and welcome to iSelect's Deep Dive Series. Uh, my name is David Yoakum. I'm an associate on the iSelect Fund Ventures team, and I'm excited to welcome you to our, to our discussion today. iSelect is an early-stage venture capital firm in St. Louis focused on early-stage companies in food, agriculture, and health. iSelect invests at the forefront of innovation, seeing emerging problems, solutions, and technologies in their infancy. We use these deep dive presentations not only as a way for us to better engage with and understand new science and technology, but also to engage with the experts and entrepreneurs who are driving change and innovation in their respective fields. One theme we've been researching is the specialty crops industry. Specialty crops represent a unique class of crops and food products from fruits and vegetables to tree nuts and flowers. The products produced by this industry make up a significant portion of U.S. agricultural output by value and represent a diverse and important source of high-quality nutrition as well. The specialty crop industry has numerous unique challenges uh, that call for similarly unique solutions. Because of this, we have split this deep dive series into two parts. If you missed part one, please free check out the recording on our YouTube channel. Uh, that part focused mostly on industry dynamics and the core challenges that face the industry. Today, we're going to dive into part two of this series, focusing on innovative technologies and startups um, that are helping to solve core challenges faced by the industry today. Um, a few process comments before we dive into the presentation. Uh, we are not soliciting investment or giving investment advice in any way whatsoever. This presentation is general industry research based on publicly available information. We have invited you to this because you're technologists, thought leaders, entrepreneurs, industry experts, early adopter customers, or sophisticated investors that are part of the iSelect network. We value your thoughts, questions, comments, and insights into this topic, and we greatly appreciate it if you actively engage during, during the presentation, and thank you in advance for your active participation. We hope for this to be an engaging and interactive presentation, so if you have questions or comments, please feel free to type your questions into the Q&A box, and we will answer as many of them as time allows at the end of the presentation. We'll try and wrap up maybe five minutes uh, before the top of the hour, uh, five to seven tops, and, and we'll, we'll answer as many questions as we can at that time. Uh, this presentation is being recorded and will be, will be available for replay both on the iSelect Fund portal as well as on our YouTube channel. And so with that, I am pleased to bring you this week's deep dive on specialty crops, um, part two of our deep dive series. So just to cover, tell you what we're going to tell you, um, we're going to do some brief speaker introductions, um, and then we're going to do a quick refresher uh, on some of the part one themes that we covered that will be important to sort of understanding the context of the presentation today. Again, if you want to learn more about the core challenges and dynamics of the specialty crops industry, we encourage you to check out part one of the series. Um, and then we're going to dive into to four or five of the key areas. Um, we, we have some previous content on certain sections of the specialty crops industry that we'll link out in case you want to check some of those out. But we're going to focus on some of these four, four key areas um, that we're going to have our speakers comment on today and some of the exciting technology that their companies are developing. And then we'll wrap things up uh, with some thoughts, thesis, um, and questions from the audience. So just to start things off, it would be great um, for our audience if we could just start off with some brief introductions. Um, so they have some context of who we're going to be hearing from today. If we could start off with Jim Eddington, then go with Bill Brady, then Jim Byron, and then finally Patrick Zelaya, um, we'll, we'll, we'll jump into things from there. Great. Thanks. Thanks, David. Hi, everybody. I'm Jim Eddington, the CEO of Arable. Uh, Arable is a, a crop intelligence company. Uh, that helps farmers to improve sustainability and productivity. And we are based in San Francisco. Thanks, Jim. Bill? Hi, my name is Bill Brady. I'm the CEO of Kula Bio, and we are a microbe-based nitrogen fertilizer company. Um, and our goal is to replace synthetic nitrogen fertilizer. Awesome. Thanks, Jim. I'm sorry. Thanks, Bill. And uh, Jim? Good morning, uh, Jim Byron uh, with XGenX. XGenX is a technology company focused on the opportunities and the challenges of bacteria in food. Excellent, thanks, Jim. And uh, last but certainly not least, Patrick. Morning, uh, Patrick Zelaya, CEO of Heavy Connect, um, based in Salinas, California. We're a mobile platform for paperless uh, compliance throughout the food supply chain. Excellent. Thanks, Patrick. Well, uh, again, thank you so much to our speakers today. We're really looking forward to hearing from you. And I'll try and get through my section as quickly as possible so that we um, have as much time to, uh, to discuss some of the really exciting work that you guys are doing. Um, so as I mentioned, I want to kick things off with just a quick refresher on a couple of the areas that we covered on part one of our Specialty Crops Deep Dive series. Um, and then we'll jump into some of the technologies that we'll be covering today. Um, so 
uh, as a refresher, um, especially crop industry represents some of our most beloved foods and uh, some others that you might not typically associate with the category. I think when most of us think about specialty crops, we think of fruits and vegetables, um, but there's often a lot more than meets the immediate imagination. Um, these include tree nuts, dried fruits, horticulture, nursery crops, floriculture, and numerous others. And whereas the American Midwest dominates U.S. production of wheat, corn, and soy, the Pacific Northwest, Florida, the Southwest, and specifically California dominate the production of specialty crops. Specifically, California produces $20 billion in output annually in just fruit, tree nut, and berries, uh, and in total uh, produces $50 billion in agricultural value, which is more than the state of Wyoming, Vermont's total GDP, and equal to that of Alaska or Montana. Um, each year, uh, the U.S. produces $79.8 billion in value from specialty crops, representing 17.6% of all agricultural output uh, in the United States, and significantly higher value per acre than staple crops. The top vegetables Americans buy as of last year are potatoes, tomatoes, onions, and while the top fruits consumed by Americans are bananas, apples, and strawberries. On average, uh, the farms that grow fruit, tree nut, and berries have fewer acres in production, but higher sales, uh, expenses, and net income uh, than U.S. farms on average. Uh, it's a high risk, but a, but a higher profit game. And now, especially crops are indeed special uh, and important to numerous applications in the food system. Notable for their dense nutritional content, diversity of flavors, and high value in the field, uh, they are certainly and clearly an extremely important part of the food system. Given their desirability, specialty crops are enjoyed by retail, food service, uh, and direct-to-consumer markets alike uh, at a rate of approximately 40%, 40%, and 20% to those respective um, outlets. Now, on the right here, to show a testament to the value the specialty crops hold on a per-acre basis, this is pulled from the USDA 2017 survey with a dollar per acre shown on the right in descending order. Uh, flowers and berries hold the top spots, followed by uh, tree fruits, vegetables, nuts, and citrus. Um, in comparison uh, to corn, all of these crops generate substantially more value per acre. And just for reference, the, um, the average value per acre, uh, though it fluctuates around $550 um, per acre for corn. So just to put into perspective this sort of fundamentally different economics that are at play um, when we're dealing with specialty crops and some of their use cases. But the specialty crops industry is not without its challenges, however, and they are numerous and significant. Um, and in, as we discussed in part one, there's sort of four to five key challenges facing specialty crops. Um, I've summarized them into five categories below, um, into human labor, fundamentally scarcity, water scarcity, food safety, regulatory compliance, and sustainability, which in this case, uh, accounts ties a little bit into compliance, but also surrounds issues associated with food waste, um, as well as, as management of agricultural inputs. It's a challenge both inside of specialty crops, but inside of, of agriculture in general. And so to sort of frame each of these four or five areas, what I'd like to do is highlight one of the innovators in the context of each of these challenges today. Um, what we're gonna start off with, we're gonna start off with water management, and then we're gonna move into food safety. Um, they're gonna move into sustainability. And then we're gonna talk about compliance because um, often compliance, as Patrick, I'm sure, will, will um, help us understand, uh, basically encompasses all of these challenges and the ways in which growers need to manage them uh, accordingly with different regulatory bodies. And if, if time allows, I will talk a little bit about um, some, of the, some of the new uh, either challenges and um, industry developments inside of labor and automation, uh, if, if time allows. We also do have a good amount of content on our deep dive page around um, automation and robotics, which is the reason that we're focusing on some of these other some of these other areas today that are that are of similar and equal importance. So with that, um, I would like to uh, start off with a, a discussion of water and some of the exciting work that Arable is doing. Um, so just just to set the set the scene uh, for water, anyone living on the West Coast knows that the, that the drought has been a persistent theme for a long time. Um, but every time a new super drought comes along, the data is even more foreboding. Right now, 70% or approximately 72% at the time that I collected this data of the Western US is in severe drought, uh, representing California's driest year since 1977. For some states in the West, it's the driest year since the, in the last 120 years of record keeping. And as a result of this, farmers often face water restrictions that force them to choose not to, to, not to plant parts of their land or to remove production entirely um, in the case of, of tree crops. And so, so Jim, uh, you know, the work that you do with Arable certainly puts growers in a better position to deal with and manage scarce resources, water included as a part of that. And so maybe before we dive 
into the specifics of how Arable is helping some of these growers. Can you tell us a little bit about the Arable platform and, and sort of how you guys work in the context of managing scarce water resources, maybe some of the types of, of crops that you guys are working with in particular? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, David. Uh, and as you highlighted, I mean, water is, water is just a huge challenge right now. It's certainly not just in specialty crops um, in agriculture, and it, it's certainly not just in, in the Western U.S. And uh, you know, we see it as, as one of the, the crises and opportunities that agriculture and the food system faces in the, the coming years and decades. And it's not something that, that's 30 years out either. I mean, the, the expectation is that by, by 2025, you know, we won't be able to meet 40% of the water demand for agriculture. Um, and just the, the impact goes you know, beyond just water availability, but, but greenhouse gases where you know, water uses, uh, pumping water for irrigation purposes for agriculture uses 7% of total power and it uses 80% of fresh water. Uh, and so this has huge societal impacts. What arable does is, is try to help put the tools in the hands of farmers who really wanna make the decisions to be as precise with water as they can, uh, put the tools in their hands to allow them to do that. And really that's not, that's not been done to date. Um, you know, they need, they need something that's uh, reliable, that's uh, intuitive and easy, and that's, that's accurate and actually you know, tells them something they don't, they don't already know. And so what we do to get there is we create a uh, crop intelligence platform that includes in-field sensing. So you see in the, the diagram down there, we put devices in the field that uh, sense what, what's going on in the soil, what's going on with the weather, but also they are watching the plants. You know, the plant itself acts like a sensor. It can tell you uh, when it needs water. And we have a, a mechanism that allows us to, to read that plant response and then tell the grower uh, you know, when and how much to irrigate uh, along with, with other things. And so we, we do that across a large number of crops. Usually they're crops that have more complex decisions to be made. And so that's a lot of specialty crops, um, but some row crops as well. Um, and we do that around the world. California is certainly a huge market for us, uh, but we're in 30 other countries. And so, um, you know, our, our goal is to, to try and help uh, accelerate you know, sustainability and, and productivity at the same time in agriculture. Uh, and water is a big way uh, that we do that. Yeah, so, so talk a little, that's a really helpful background. Can you, you talk a little bit about for some of these extremely water stressed regions that we expect to continue to to look that way going in the future and, and you alluded that it's not just in not just in the west uh it's in the u.s broadly but also and i'm i'm certain in some of your some of your south american customers or central american customers yeah. as well what what kind of decisions can they make using using tools that arable provides in order is it is it just is it just simply a knowing when a when and how much to manage and, and how much can they typically save if they have the data yeah. to be able to tell them tell them how to make those decisions yeah the i mean the if you think about the basics of of uh, making decisions around irrigation water application yeah you, you got it which is that there there are two main components which are timing and amount and timing sometimes you know trumps amount so you have to be able to understand the growth stages of the crop uh, when is it actually going, to, when do you want to be really sure that it has enough water and when can you either, uh, in order to save water, maybe irrigate a little bit less or with many specialty crops, this is one of the key differences. Uh, there's a concept called deficit irrigation where I intentionally withhold water to stress the crop and create the right quality element of you know, mm -hmm. bricks, soluble solids, things like that. And that's very difficult uh, to, to dial in. And as is, as is the case with many other input decisions or on-farm decisions, like fertilizer, like spraying pesticides, uh, you know, as, as any of us would, when not presented with sufficient information, the decision is to be risk averse and to just apply more than you need. Happens with fertilizer right. for sure, as I'm sure uh, the Kula Bio yeah. uh, team will tell us here. Um, and so the way around that is to say, hey, we know exactly the growth stage the crop is in right now. We know exactly how much water it needs right now. And I can tell you not only, hey, that's what's going on in the soil. This is what the, the plant's demanding. I can also tell you the crop is not stressed due to a lack of water right now because I'm observing uh, the mechanism that, that shows that. And so that's a, a set of spectral and thermal sensors that look at the leaf. And that leaf, just like humans, uh, you know, it transpires in that case of the leaf, like just like we sweat and that cools it down. And when it has enough water and it's expelling H2O, it's bringing in CO2, it's 
you know, through photosynthesis, creating mass. And uh, when that crop is water stressed, those little holes close up and the water does not expel anymore. It, it, it does not sweat and it heats up. And so that mechanism allows us to say, you know, if you, if you uh, are intending to keep that crop not stressed, you're doing fine. You don't need to put down more water. Uh, if you are trying to create stress, hey, you're doing that and uh, you, know, you can... <laughs> You can, or you can stop now because it's been in stress for two weeks and that was your intended outcome. So all of that goes into just you know, complete data that describes the full system of soil plant and response, uh, intuitive tools that make it easy to use that and uh, just a more precise way to dial in water. And what we've seen is in using that, growers can reduce water by 35 to 50% and still get the same or better outcomes in terms of yield and quality. And we've seen that across a number of crops. And so yeah, I think the, the promise is there uh, through digital tools and not just arables. There's, you know, there's other ones that will be brought to bear um, and be effective. We can, we can produce as much at a higher quality with significantly, significantly less water than we use today. Yeah, I mean, just like what, what, what is the average overuse of water that you typically see in, in, any, in any given operation where when, they, when they're given the tools to manage more effectively their water use? How much they actually end up cutting water use by? Yeah, I mean we're we're surprised. Um, you know, we see, we talk to customers and measure this with customers. Thirty five percent is about average, and the wow. it, it ties about uh, half to to timing. Where there's times of the growth state where they say, hey, I, you know, when this crop goes from, you know, green three to pink one, these are growth stage names for for tomatoes. Uh, I'm going to take irrigation down 40%, but I don't know when that is. So I'm going to just be conservative and do it, you know, three weeks late. Um, and that three weeks late makes up quite a bit. Um, and there's also a lot of opportunities through, um, you know, what you're doing early in the season when you're maybe just sort of trying to make sure everything's okay. And the last one is that actually adds up to a fair bit is waste. So, uh, you know, I mm -hmm. intend to turn things on for six hours and my my crew that drives out and you know turns those things on and turns them up, they left one on and now irrigated for 30 hours, something like that. So there's just ah. mistakes that get made. And this is more of sort of a standard IoT remote monitoring uh, type of play where just knowing that what gets executed in the field is what I intended to be executed uh, represents a, a, a pocket of savings as well and, and a way to reduce waste in the system. Are, are you, with, with all, with that kind of, that that kind of savings in mind. Are you getting any interest from from either regulators and water stress regions about trying to bring tools like this to better manage that, or or bring make that a, just an inherent yes. part of of agriculture in those areas? Yes, and so one of the things that we create is a a very accurate uh, representation of a concept called evapotranspiration, which is just how much water does the plant mm -hmm. need or demand on any given day. And with the, the now present regulation in California, that's a core concept, which is, hey, to set the baseline of you know, what um, an olive tree in Bakersfield should irrigate to, you need right. to know what is a sort of an accurate ET number. And so both from our customers and from regulators, we've been getting asked to, to represent what are the actual crop water demand numbers by crop by region. Um, and that yeah. I think is actually a really important part of irrigation or of regulation around irrigation, which is it has to be fair to the farmer. You know, just to say every almond tree in California gets 42 acre inches of water every year doesn't make any sense. Each year is different. Yeah. Each part of the state is different. Soils are different. Almond trees are different. And so uh, being able to do that in a way that says, hey, this was a reasonable amount of water to use for your crop for this year. And if you stay within that, you're fine. But if you're excessive in your use, you know, that's going to be penalized. That's a much better way to do it than just sticking everybody with one blanket rule. So regulation is going to be really important. Yeah. It's already happening here in California. It's going to happen in the rest of the, the Western U.S. And I think there's ways to do it where, uh, you know, everybody can win as opposed to, to really uh, decreasing the productivity of agriculture, which is the last thing we need. Right, right. I think, well, you made a comment there that, that ties into a question I wanted to ask you, and it's, it sort of speaks to the way in which tools like Arable are able to provide this sort of hyper-local digital layer that is just accurate in a different kind of way and it learns in a different kind of way. And so as, 
you know, what, one of the things that's a heavy topic of conversation around the drought in the West is the exacerbation caused by climate change. Because obviously the West is prone yeah. to drought over over time and in history, but we're seeing unprecedented types of events over the course of measurable history. Um, and so, while arable helps with with water management, as climate becomes more variable or extreme climatic events become more variable uh, or more extreme in their severity. How, how do you guys play a part in that as well? Because that's equally as important yeah. as being able simply to manage water in the season, understanding the current conditions of the season. Yeah, I mean, we're, we see this effect all the time. Obviously, it's, you know, it's something that, that we study from a, a data science and uh, perspective and a climatologic perspective, but we just hear it from our customers. And I've been hearing it for, for years uh, from growers around the world, which is things are not like they used to be. Uh, and there's a great story I heard from one of our uh, grower customers a few months ago, which is you're down in the Central Valley, big vegetable growers. So we used to see one, maybe two days over 100 degrees during the crop season. Now we see 13 to 14 regularly right. for the last five years. And so um, it's really stark. And with that, that just changes the ways that you grow. Um, and you know, certainly it changes that concept of evapotranspiration, which is driven by temperature and sunlight. Uh, we're also seeing significant changes in rainfall patterns where uh, heavier rains, but less frequent or more sort of in, uh, less predictable and intermittent. The timing of those rains is changing and all of that just really throws a wrench into growing crops. Right. And so it, it makes a, uh, a data driven system more useful uh, in that I have another tool in the toolbox to say, you know, if, if do what I, I usually do isn't applicable anymore it's nice to have the reassurance of, of a data-driven approach that can augment my decision-making and tell me, all right, this is a crazy year. I haven't seen this before. Um, right. but, you know, the system is saying, here's about what I should do. I'm going to, I'm going to take that and run with it. And so that's, that's a big piece that's helpful. And you know, one of the ways that irrigated growers mitigate large heat spikes is through the use of, of water. So it's sometimes to get out in front of, of a coming heat spike yep. and protect the crop, um, you know, from serious damage. Uh, is to irrigate. And so, uh, you know, some of it is, is hard to, you know, mitigate or create resilience against. Some of it's about, you know, adaptation and where we grow things. We also see, you know, our large customers doing that, which is they're worried about the viability of growing crops in certain regions. The, you go to you know, the Napa Valley and you will hear that the, the consensus is they will not be growing Cabernet Sauvignon grapes on the Napa Valley floor in 10 years. It'll be too hot. Um, and they'll you know, move yeah. up into the mountains and uh, they'll have to grow something else. And so that's just one small example of what is coming. Uh, and we see that with a number of our customers where they're scouting new lands around the world to grow staple crops that we think a lot about and buy at the grocery store every day because they're certain they won't be growing what they, you know, the trees that they grow now in those regions in, in 10 years. So it's, yeah. uh, it's a huge disruption that's already happening. Yeah, yeah. Well, hugely insightful, Jim, and and it's it, it's concerning that the the water challenge certainly isn't going anywhere. But but grateful that there are solutions like this that are being developed. And and thanks thanks for the work that you guys are doing. Um, if you have questions for Jim, please feel free to um to save them for now. We'll answer them towards the end of the presentation. But Jim, thanks so much for your comments here. And and again, congrats on all the all the fantastic work you guys are doing. Um, Absolutely. And the next David. section. In the next. Yeah, of course. In the next section, I'd like to jump to talk about another very interesting challenge in the food safety space. And we've got a food safety veteran and Jim Byron here today. We're really here to, excited to hear um, some of his thoughts. But just to, um, to prime the discussion, so food safety, um, particularly microbial contamination, continues to be a challenge for the specialty crop industry and the food industry in general, which I think Jim can also comment on. Um, and 2016 was a particularly challenging, tough year for the industry, and there's a lot of response that came out of that. Um, according to the CDC, 12% of reported foodborne illness in the U.S. comes from contaminated fresh produce, um, typically listed as listeria, E. coli, or salmonella. And food recalls cost companies an average of $10 million in direct costs every year alone. So, uh, Jim, before we, before we jump into Xgenix and your work there specifically, I'd love to get your perspective as a veteran of the food, the food safety industry. You know, food safety continues to be a major challenge in the food supply chain, um, but particularly in specialty crops with leafy greens. And I guess just, you know, over perhaps maybe the last 10, 15 years or so, how have you seen the industry evolve um, and, and what has it done well and what has it failed at from a technology adoption and an implementation standpoint 
And I guess just fundamentally has has a food safety problem in specialty crops or just in the food industry in general improved in your opinion? Yeah, thanks, David. Uh, let me take it back 20 years. Uh, I can remember 20 years ago. All right. The <laughs> industry conferences and uh, the scientific people were talking about chlorine and wash water and leafy greens. And there was a lot of confusion around how much chlorine, how do we measure chlorine, how often do we change the water? Uh, it was really, uh, for me at the time, just coming into the food industry, very disturbing because all of this information existed outside of the food industry and it just needed to be brought in and, and you know, benefited from in this uh, industry. So the industry has made a lot of progress over the last 20 years from that beginning where uh, not a lot was done and uh, not a lot was understood to developing understanding and training and, and standard procedures that have helped uh, tremendously. Um, and we have a long way to go. Um, you know, back uh, 20 years ago, the beef industry had a lot of recalls for E. coli 015787 uh, STEC, a pathogenic E. coli. And uh, the produce industry actually borrowed a lot of the, the practices that were being implemented and used and seemed successful in the beef industry. They were brought over to produce and, and uh, became the beginnings of the food safety practices for the produce industry. And um, that was progress. And uh, at this point, I think we've made a lot of progress on the wrong path. And it's time for us as an industry to go back and look at uh, what's unique about the produce industry and how we grow this food and how we um, harvest this food and how we process this food, uh, the environment or environments that this food is grown in and we really need to examine what are the unique things about um, the specialty crops and leafy greens and uh, that make it different and that make it unique and that make it require uh, really better solutions that are uh, that depend on automation really. Uh, listening to Jim uh, talk about um, at Arable the use of data to drive automation in the, in the growing and production of crops. We need to have that same approach to the problem of food safety. So it becomes more of an operational uh, practice that is just uh, consistently applied across the entire industry and uh, not so uh, uh, specific to an individual grower or person in the field making a judgment call about something as important as food safety. So a lot of progress. Um, we've gotten to a point where things are better, but not, uh, they're far from perfect. And really for Got us to, to get to the next place where we need to go, uh, we need to do some fundamental things in food safety, in uh, value-added produce that really create an opportunity for technology companies and investors and, and actually growers. I think uh, at the end, uh, growers would be much happier with uh, an automated uh, center-driven approach to food safety instead of uh, what we have today. Well, you know, well, I'll, I'll hold uh, one question I, I really want to ask you on that part there. But the first, um, the first piece, so, you know, if you go to the Xgenics website, and I guess backing up a little bit, if you think about all the ways that you might implement a technology inside of food safety, food safety context, it seems like you guys are doing a little bit of all of those pieces. I mean, you've got an, you've got a treatment, you've got a, you've got a rapid diagnose, diagnostic, you've got a, a food laboratory testing. I think you guys also have a traceability platform. Can you talk about just like how you guys have taken all, it's a, clearly that's a refl somewhat reflective of some of your experience and the need for these different types of solutions. How do you guys make all those work together? Yeah, so Xgenix is uh, different. Uh, the way we're different is uh, we don't have a technology that is in search of a problem. Uh, we start with the problem and then um, we find the, the technology or actually develop a technology and you know, we'll file patents on technology that actually solve the problem for the grower or for the food producer. 
So that's a very iterative process. Um, the lab testing we've actually pulled back on uh, from commercial laboratory services. The only lab testing we do today is lab testing internal for our own work. Uh, there's a whole ecosystem of laboratories out there that are following the, the prescribed uh, methods for testing uh, produce that um, is kind of where the industry is today. Uh, some are off on their own uh, methods to do that, which is questionable, but um, where we are today is not where Xgenix wants to be focused. We want to be focused on the future. So we are very focused on developing the technologies that are automation driven by sensors that are going to basically allow growers to not need to send samples to laboratories for testing in the future. Um, that is uh, fundamentally just a flawed approach. And what we need is we need things that are more uh, progressive and, and, and more accurate, more precise around uh, measuring the things that changed and um, correlating that with what we know about conditions and actually uh, taking preemptive action. So uh, much different. Uh, sanitizers, uh, we're in the business of supplying chemicals to the industry because as a technology company, uh, you will die on the vine if you don't have a way to produce revenue. So uh, we are investing revenue from our chemicals portfolio and our IP in that area to actually work with the industry, supply them the things that they need. And uh, by supplying them, we're able to be very closely connected to them in their operation. And that's where we do our development work. Uh, we develop solutions that actually work in the real world. So to, to do that, you need to be actually working in the real world and go through that iterative process of uh, creating something new and different and better. And then the next step of that is, you know, making it a commercial product that uh, is another whole phase of product development. Yeah, yeah, that's really, really helpful, Jim. Uh, on the, when I, thinking about sort of product sanitization and treatment versus, versus sort of molecular diagnostics, rapid food safety testing in the field, kinds of technologies. Do you see there being a bigger gap on one side versus the other of those two? Um, or is it sort of equal on both sides? Huge opportunities on both sides. Uh, sanitization, yeah. we're talking mostly about uh, equipment. So uh, sanitizing equipment and gloves and, and the things that are coming in contact with food in the field or in the processing plant. Uh, in, in addition to sanitization, the same chemicals that we supply that are used for sanitization are also used to kill bacteria in irrigation water. So we're very interested in understanding how do we apply exactly the right amount of chemistry to kill bacteria in that bulk water before it's applied to the plants or the ground that it's going. So that piece is really important. Uh, we are looking at some new technologies there that. Uh, hopefully will become more sustainable and environmentally friendly, less chemistry, uh, more mm -hmm. um, uh, long-lasting effect from sanitizers that are applied once and not, you know, constantly. On the yeah. diagnostic side, uh, the work that's being done in diagnostics, the development, the progression of diagnostics is really fundamental to making the leap to sensors. So uh, all of the information, all of the development, all of the progress on diagnostics, uh, in our opinion here at XGenX, that really is going to lead to the development of reliable real-time sensors. Again, uh, Jim, I really appreciated your presentation earlier about Arable. Uh, we want to be able to understand um, what's going on using senses and uh, you know, data that drives automatic reactions or actions to conditions that change. So um, the diagnostics work that's happened up until now is really important and it will, you know, uh, become the, 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 the beginnings of the next level of um, capability. Yeah. Well, Jim, one, one thing that I was thinking that you might have 
some perspective on, you know, there's obviously there's a lot of companies that are innovating across food safety. We've seen companies that are doing some really exciting rapid in-field diagnostic testing. We've seen companies applying hyperspectral imaging or, or cold plasma treatment as a way of either identifying or, or, or sanitizing products in a, in a non-invasive way. I guess if you, if you could design a perfect technology to either prevent or, or predict food safety, what, what, would it, what would it need to have? What, what would its product specs need to look like? Yeah, so it would be a system, actually. It wouldn't be a product. Uh, the, the conditions in different crops, in different parts of the country, in different fields, in different water supplies, different locations, uh, require um, someone or, or they require different approaches. So the, the technology of the future will be uh, a number of technologies that are used together to create uh, the outcome that we want. Uh, it won't be a one, one size fits all. It can't be um, just because of the, the diversity of the, the growing situation and the, and the, uh, the harvesting and, and, and uh, processing operations that do exist. Got it. Excellent. Well, Jim, thank you so much for the important work you guys are doing at Xgenix. Again, to our audience, if you have any questions for Jim, um, certainly given his, given his expertise in the food safety uh, world, please feel free to save those for the end. Um, and I'm sure we can, we can get to a few of them. But thank you, Jim. So next, um, I'd like to talk a little bit about um, sustainability uh, and in the context here sort of around reducing nitrogen runoff, reducing uh, overuse of, of fertilizer, um, and also managing GHGs, which are all, all becoming important issues in, um, in specialty crops and in agriculture in general. Um, to, to set the scene here, uh, sustainability has been top of mind across food and agriculture, and specialty crops are no exception to this. Um, for example, uh, fresh fruits and vegetables suffer from 34 to 36% waste across retail and consumer channels. Um, and then there's further, there's been groundwater pollution and overuse of nitrogen fertilizer is an area of both human health and ecosystem concerns. And in California, for example, has implemented policies that require the discharge rates for farmers um, of nitrogen off of their land um, to decrease 60% between 2023 and 2031. Um, further climate change oriented policy is expected to play a role in this, um, especially considering uh, the fact that the Haber-Bosch process, which produces the majority of synthetic nitrogen um, that's used today, um, is responsible for about 3% of global emissions annually. And so uh, Bill uh, Brady here with Cool Bio is doing some really, really exciting work that's sort of the convergence of all of these, all of these fields. Um, Bill, I'd love if you could tell us a little bit about Cool Bio and some of the work that your team is doing to build microbial products that help reduce the need for synthetic nitrogen while sequestering carbon in soils. What can your technology and products do inside of this context? Sure, yeah, thank you. Um, so, so Kula Bio is a, it's a microbe-based nitrogen fertilizer company, and our target is to replace synthetic nitrogen. Uh, and as most of you probably know, synthetic nitrogen or chemically derived nitrogen um, was a great invention. It allowed the population to grow, but it's got some big problems. You know, one problem is for every pound of nitrogen you make with that process, uh, you make four pounds of CO2. Uh, the other problem is of all of the nitrogen, synthetic nitrogen that farmers put on the soil, roughly 50% runs off and it ends up in our waterways and is very detrimental to marine life and of course drinking water uh, quality. And then third of all, uh, you degrade the soil over time with synthetic nitrogen. So it, it's really kind of a a triple whammy. So, so we've got a microbe-based solution for this. Um, and now microbes in ag is not a new idea, of course, but uh, over time, and even up until now, the fundamental problem with microbes is that there's an energy bottleneck. So when microbes get in the soil, they either have to compete with existing microbes for food and energy, or borrow from the plant itself. It's not the end of the world, but the issue is the microbe only lives a matter of hours, maybe up to a day. So it can only do its job, do its beneficial job for that period of time. 
So the invention here at Kula and what we do is we give uh, these microbes, in this case, naturally occurring nitrogen fixing microbes, we give them their own independent source of energy before they go in the soil. So you think a little bit uh, of, of a bear prior to hibernation. We kind of fatten them up with their own energy source. And then when they get in the soil, they're independent actors. Um, and with the current levels of energy we give them, rather than living hours, our microbes live for two to two and a half weeks. Um, so they live two to two and a half weeks. They do their job of fixing nitrogen from the air. So these microbes take nitrogen from the air, which is 80% nitrogen, and deposit it in the soil. Um, does it for two and a half weeks, then the microbe dies when it uses up that energy store and simply becomes a source of carbon in the soil. Um, so the interesting thing is two, two and a half weeks, now all of a sudden the quantity of nitrogen gets to be pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. And in the uh, trials we've done, we've replaced between 50 and 80% of synthetic nitrogen. So the quantity is significant. And then you start to divide the cost by that kind of quantity. And we are very, very competitive with synthetic as well. So that's, uh, that's the Kula Bio approach. Got it. Well, that, the, Bill, that's a really good way of framing it. And, and it positions Kula in a way where you're sitting at this sort of convergence of a number of really interesting trends across sustainable agriculture, um, including the need to, to, to decarbonize, um, including the need to reduce the use of synthetic nitrogen, um, but also the ability to store more carbon in the soil, which is, which is presenting a unique opportunity and a revenue stream for growers potentially if, if soil carbon markets can, can start to hold up. What kind, of, what kind of interest are you guys starting to see from policymakers and biological solutions like Kula Bio? And are there any growers that are maybe reaching out proactively in anticipation that this is something that they're one, going to need to adopt, but also two, should adopt because it may put them in a position to capture these additional revenue streams that are being set up by some of these environmental markets? Yeah, I, I would say multifaceted interest in, in that area. Um, so on one hand, uh, you note here the California policy. Um, so we have been contacted and we have programs going on with some of the high value crops, for example, berries. I can't mention any names, but, um, um, but, but they're facing this kind of reduction, but can't give up the yield on that, on that very high value right. product. So, um, so we're seeing it from there. Very interestingly, we've also seen, of course, without mentioning names, um, nationwide turf-related companies who Interesting. are not facing any particular other than the California state um, restrictions, but they see them coming. And, uh, and, you know, turf, golf course, your lawn, your kids are rolling around, your dog's rolling around. So, so it's a really big, big issue for them. Um, so yeah, so there, there's a lot of interest. And then on the carbon side, David, um, we've, we've seen a, a lot of interest. So, um, you know, I mentioned Haber-Bosch, you produce four pounds of CO2 for every pound of nitrogen. With Kula Bio, because of the way we do it, we actually sequester a small amount of carbon for every pound of nitrogen we make. So we have had interest throughout the supply chain I mean, we've had Unilever and Pepsi in our, right. our shop. We've had the ADMs of the world, the food processing, and then of course the farmers. So, um, so a lot, a lot of interest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then when it when it comes to to specialty crops in particular, um, you know, that's that's been a target for you guys from an initial commercial rollout. Is there are there ideal business technology or regulatory advantages that you guys? starting off in that market as opposed to going after some of the uh, some of the larger row crop types of markets? Yeah, well, I think Jim Byron hit the key point before when he said that uh, if you're a technology company, you don't figure out a way to get revenue, you die on the vine. And, um, <laughs> right. So there is a practical aspect to it. But, um, but I think we got focused on specialty crops early, first of all, because there was the big need. So, so I met this right. California thing. If you're growing berries in California, it was a really big need. Um, and 
the other solutions, you know, there are other organic forms of nitrogen, but they got problems too. Super expensive. You got to put those organic sources down six to nine months before you need the nitrogen so it can decompose into the soil. So the need was really high. The price point was quite high. Um, and we thought we could perfect ourselves on specialty crops um, before we got to row crops. Because most of you know with row crops, yeah, there's no room for error. You, so, so we perfect our quality, our batch to batch quality and so on and so forth. Um, so that was the thinking. And then at the end of the day, we're, we're pretty confident we can create a significantly cash flow positive company on specialty crops alone and then move our way into row crops. So that was, that was the thinking that, that went into it, but, but really yeah. driven by the need and the value proposition first and foremost. Yeah. Yeah. And then I, I guess in, in, as, as there becomes more pressure in the specialty crop industry to adopt biological solutions like this, really ones where like a Kula bio that has some of these really, really enticing um, attributes about it. Are you seeing a, a shift in, in the thinking that the growers are having in terms of their acceptance of biological solutions in some of the sort of bugs in a jug kind of thinking? Is that, is it, op is it opening minds? Is it, is it creating more skepticism? What's sort of generally speaking been the response in your mind? Yeah, well, I, I would say um, without being critical, but I, I think the first wave of biologicals here, whatever it was, 10 years ago or five years ago, was yeah. probably not a, not a very good showing in the eyes of the farmers. So, um, yeah. you know, we as we launched the company, we went out, we contacted 600 farmers. We had meaningful discussions with 100 of them, and they were very receptive to the to the idea and particularly to building soil health. They care about the environment, but particularly to building soil health. Um, but, but the takeaways we came away with, and, and the farmers were sure we got this, which was, look, Kula Bio, number one, I'm not gonna pay you any more money. Number two, I'm not gonna change what I'm doing. Uh, number three, I'm not gonna buy new capital equipment. And number four, you know, show me it works. Not, not in some fancy lab at Harvard, but show me it works right. on a farm. And if you do, you know, you got, you got, a, good, you got a good shot. And so we, we tried to really design with all of that, um, with all of that in mind. And yeah, you, you guys know farmers are extremely smart people and always, always willing to get an edge. Uh, so so if, I think if you can bring what they, what they ask for, the, the acceptance will be there. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Bill, thank you so much for your commentary on this section. Uh, again, for anybody in the audience who has questions for Bill, please feel free to uh, save your questions for the end. Um, we're going to jump now to a section that ties together a lot of what we've already talked about today. Um, and, and Patrick's going to help explain to us a little bit um, some of the compliance challenges uh, and the regulations that, that farmers face, um, particularly uh, in California and, and across specialty crop production. Um, and this is the reason I saved this for last. So uh, in, our, in our last uh, deep dive, we talked about a study conducted at Cal Poly on a Salinas Valley lettuce grower, an area that Patrick is very familiar with, um, where regulatory costs had increased 795% between 2006 and 2017, largely as a result of policies focused on improving worker wages and, and conditions, improving groundwater management, and reducing food safety recalls. Now, these are all important issues, but a lot of the cost burden ends up falling on those growers um, which makes it really challenging to manage. And so, uh, Patrick, I screenshotted a picture here of a binder that's from your from your deck um, that I think really helps illustrate the pain that so many, especially crop growers, are going through in managing compliance. Um, before we talk about Heavy Connect and the work that you guys are doing to help streamline a lot of this, help us understand right now what specialty crop growers are having to do to manage the ever-increasing number of rules and regulations that they're having to follow. Yeah, so uh, today in specialty crops, you're, you're looking at documentation around food safety, worker safety, um, not just with like um, injury incident reports, but also now with COVID health screenings. You've got your sustainability checklists, um, inventory levels for uh, fertilizer and pesticides and, and your inputs. All of this has to be documented for different regulators, for different buyer requirements. 
of what you're doing in the field and it does continue to increase so like with the fda's food safety modernization act or fisma part of the the new era of food safety is is growers having improved record keeping and improved documentation and they're kind of vague in, in the specifics of what that means but if you go into any farm office you'll see one of the walls completely covered with binders shelves of binders and in some <laughs> room it, it, it you know it's it's packed with bankers boxes of records and all of this is uh, is driven by compliance and I think what's most interesting when you when you look at that binder there, um, there's nothing changing in how these farmers are farming. It's just that they're being required more and more to write down what they do in, in greater and greater detail for more and more regulatory bodies. And so there's there's no you know inherent improvement in necessarily in the farming practices per se when you become compliant with these regulations. It's just that you're kind of as the math teacher used to say in school, showing your work. Right, right. And so with with that in mind, tell us a little about, about what Heavy Connect does and how your how your product helps serve these these growers with these increasing regulatory requirements and 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 sort of what's like the biggest area that they sort of get to take a deep breath of once they once they sign on to Heavy Connect versus having to manage all these binders. Yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, it's actually kind of counterintuitive. So so when a, a grower, a supplier, uh, starts using Heavy Connect, they start to realize uh, the technologies that are available. And that is that, you know, historically for the last you know thirty to forty years, back to the mid '80s, the the digital tools that have been available to the supplier community have been expensive and very complex, typically hardware-based. So you'd have to buy special devices like a handheld symbol scanner gun to scan barcodes. But today, a mobile app can leverage the device's camera from any Android or Apple device to scan barcodes and QR codes. And so Heavy Connect is an evolutionary change in, in the way that uh, suppliers throughout the food supply chain uh, document their, their compliance. So, so Heavy Connect, is a is a mobile platform and the benefit of it is to uh, simplify and automate the workload of compliance so you know like i said it's not it's not a tremendous change in in how people are are doing their farming but as far as like managing corrective actions and their documentation doing an annual audit submitting these documents to the regulators like global gap for example all of that is now being automated through the Heavy Connect platform. So it's it has it has improved the way that people spend the time in their workday, and the cost savings really align mostly with the value of their time. So think think yeah. about like doing income taxes, um, you know, back with with the old 1040 Easy form and the shoebox of receipts, like everyone's using TurboTax these days or, or something similar to it. And the, you know, the, the impetus to do that for, for an individual tax filer isn't necessarily to get a bigger tax return. It's to simplify the process of filing a mandatory workflow, which is your income tax. Same thing like when you go to the doctor and right. you wonder like, why do I have this clipboard of papers to fill out? So it, it's the same thing as that the, the drive or the, the change is really a more pleasant work day than, you know, improved farming practices or, you know, a more profitable um, uh, farming operation or supplier operation like processing facilities. It's really about just making life easier for the people in the operation. Yeah. Yeah. With, with, with all that in mind, you know, there's a lot of different government bodies that these growers are responding to a lot of different regulations that they're responding to that sort of change year over year. Are there, are there certain areas of compliance that are exceptionally challenging compared to others that growers are facing right now? And does it vary from crop to crop? Yeah, I, I think that the, you know, certainly the high value crops have the most amount of equipment and the most people in the field um, compared to your, you know, corn, soybeans, dryland, wheat of the Midwest. So having that much that's uh, at stake in your operation that you have 
far less control over in a controlled environment like a manufacturing facility um, or an office setting. You just don't have as much control because of the diminished communication, the diminished collaboration in a, in a field setting. And so when you get into these high value crops, you're also seeing these, these are the crops that are more susceptible to concerns around food safety or with that much equipment and people that you have that much higher work, workers compensation risk exposure to somebody getting hurt. And so that that's really where we started. Um, you know, we were, we, it was a coincidence really and, and fortunate that the Salinas Valley is, is home. And so we started Heavy Connect there. But, you know, back when I, when I worked in um, at Deer and Company in different manufacturing facilities, we would often send our equipment out to California and specifically the Salinas Valley as this proving ground for global adoption and basically, you know, would, would put the equipment to the test. Well, the same thing as far as like the demands of compliance. We're building this around farmers in the in the Western states in fresh produce that have the most demands, um, similar to like Europe. And, it, mm -hmm. and we follow that kind of philosophy of the, the saying, you know, you, you hear people say, if you can make it in New York, you can make it anywhere. When it comes to the food <laughs> supply chain, like that's, that's the Salinas Valley, right? If you can make these farmers and growers and processors happy, you've got something that can, can be adopted globally. Yeah. Yeah, I know it was. Yeah. Well, and Salinas is hereby the New York of the New York of fresh produce. Um, you heard it here first. Um, you know, we, we covered, we covered a few areas prior to this section, water management, food safety, sustainability, you know, labor automation is one we, we don't have time to, to chat about today, but obviously is a ma another major area, um, and challenge from a compliance perspective. What do you, what do you expect to see in the next wave of compliance oriented challenges and, and how are you guys like staying ahead of that to make sure that when those things come along, you guys are ready from a product perspective. Absolutely. So, so we're primarily about simplifying the data collection. That's been the biggest pain point. We have a data layer yeah. on top of it through through a BI tool. But yeah, so you see regulations, and you know, as far as like minimum wage and the different piece rate calculations, um, both from regulators, but just also from you know the enforcement of the laws and, and employees coming to their employers with a with a lawyer saying I wasn't paid properly and having such difficulty like proving that they were and so that that digital data collection really mitigates a lot of the risk involved so where you're going to see things going from here is now that the data collection piece has been digitized across the food supply chain uh, it, what can you do with that data and so now that you've minimized your cost can I get um, lower workers comp insurance because I'm documenting my safety practices better. You know, can, can I get that certification for um, organic or sustainability to improve my marketing practices? Because I can show my work. I can show what I'm doing in the field. I've got years of heavy connect data um, to prove it. And so it's really looking at, at where, we can, where we can take that data and then also integrating into, into ERP systems like um, SAP or um, I trade networks and, and getting data to go into different places to, to enrich the experience of, of other headaches in the food supply chain. Got it. Thanks, Patrick. Well, I know we're, we're jumping up uh, against the top of the hour here. So I want to give uh, the audience just an opportunity to ask questions of the speakers, but also a sense of what was left in this presentation. We won't have time to get to everything today. Um, I do have a brief slide here talking about some industry developments in agriculture and automation, including some recent acquisitions by CNH and John Deere of Raven and most recently Bearflag Robotics, um, which are really promising signs for um, robotics and automation technology companies inside of agriculture. Um, I'll point you guys some other deep dives that we have um, that are focused on these, on these um, sectors in specific, um, but I just wanted to flash this in case somebody wanted to take a look at this later in recording. Um, so with that, I'd like to just pause here to see if we have any questions for our speakers. Um, if anybody has to jump, um, please feel free to do so. It looks like we have one, at least one in the chat window. Um, oh, that's just a comment. Um, so if you do have questions, the best way to ask a question at this time is to type your question into the Q&A box, and I can answer them in the order that they are received. Um, so I'll pause here just for a moment to see if there are any questions for, uh, for Jim Eddington, Bill Brady. Jim Byron or Patrick Slaya.
Well, seeing none, um, I am going to go ahead and, and first and foremost, would love to thank uh, Jim, Bill, Jim, and, and Patrick uh, for your time today. Uh, the specialty crafts industry in this two-part series has been a really interesting deep dive into some really specific challenges that this extremely important industry faces. And I want to thank you for not only your participation on this call today, but also for the important work that you guys are doing to help chip away at a number of those challenges and working with the growers that you do um, to help sustain um, the agricultural production that makes um, this country in the West so, so rich and that was produce some of these products that we hold so dear. Um, for anybody who was new to this deep dive series, we host these every month. We typically alternate between food and, a food and agriculture oriented theme and a healthcare oriented theme. Um, we also have previous deep dives that were focused on the specialty crop industry part one that I would encourage you to check out. Part two will also be made available on YouTube. Further, we also have a, a previous deep dive focused on farm robotics and automation, if you'd like to check that out, because it's also very important in the context of our discussion today. And then finally, uh, we have a deep dive uh, next month in the healthcare section uh, focused on longevity and aging. Um, Tom Bunn, another, another coworker of mine, will be, um, will be leading that discussion next month um, in case you'd like to check out that topic as well. But otherwise, thank you so much to our speakers. Thank you so much for our audience, and we'll look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks, everybody. Pleasure. Thank you.